Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, we're going to be looking at the first 23 verses of that chapter, Mark 13, 1 to 23. And I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Excuse me. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may, might not or may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. This week wasn't a great one for the financial markets. If you've been following, the stock market was down. Crypto was down. Some weak earnings outlooks coupled with inflationary pressures and bad employment numbers all contributed to what many are saying is a necessary correction to markets that have been flying relatively high in recent 
um, years, despite the pandemic even. Many believe that uh, we are in a bubble. Tech company valuations are too high. There's too much access to capital for startups and new ventures. Crypto and meme investing have bred a young generation of speculative investors. There's just too much froth in the market. And everyone knows that when there's a bubble, it's bound to pop at some point. Now, I'm not making any any predictions about the direction of the financial markets, but I think it's helpful to remember that good times don't always last. Uh, There are bound to be corrections when expectations grow beyond what can be reasonably substantiated. And as we reach chapter 13 of Mark's gospel, you might say that we're entering into correction territory. The disciples of Jesus had some frothy expectations about his ministry. For the past few years, they had witnessed him teach with authority and do mighty works. They had no doubt dreamed about the kingdom he would bring. They even argued amongst themselves about who would be the greatest. And as Jesus entered Jerusalem during the final week before his death, they were there with him. They heard the shouts of the crowd welcoming him into the city like a conquering king. They listened as he skillfully silenced those who tried to trap him. And though Jesus had repeatedly warned them that he was headed to Jerusalem to suffer and to die, they largely ignored those warnings. From the day they had been called by Jesus to follow him, he had never disappointed. He had never ceased to amaze them. They were ready for him to rule and to reign. And their kingdom expectations had become bubble-like. So in the final years before his death, or the final days, I should say, before his death, Jesus took time to inject some reality into their perspective. He took time to prepare them for what was coming. To be clear, Jesus was not bearish or negative about the long-term future of his kingdom. But he needed his disciples to understand that in the relative short term, in the current age that we're still in, there was more bad news ahead for them than they were expecting. This morning, we'll see in Mark 13 how Jesus corrected and tried to recalibrate those expectations as he spoke to his disciples about the temple and about the days to come. At this particular point in Mark's gospel, Jesus had been condemning the religious leadership of Israel. He condemned them for how they had made the the temple into a marketplace to rob the people of God. He likened the temple to a withered fig tree that was dead, lacked any signs of spiritual fruit. Jesus also condemned the leaders of Israel for persistently rejecting the messengers of God. And and last week we saw that he condemned the scribes for loving the benefits of being respected for their religion more than the God of their religion. He condemned them for devouring widows' houses and being religious fakes. This bankruptcy of the Jewish religious system must have been on the minds of Jesus' disciples as they left the temple with him after a full day. And as they left, we learn in verse 1 of chapter 13 that one of his disciples made an interesting comment. 
encourage you to look there with me in your Bibles. It says in verse 1 of chapter 13 that as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The enthusiasm in this comment is hard to ignore. This disciple made it a point to mention to Jesus how impressive the temple complex in Jerusalem was. That's an, that's an interesting comment, isn't it? It's not like Jesus hadn't seen the temple before. So what prompted this disciple to say that? Maybe he was simply overcome with the beauty of the temple. It, it was a, a wonderful place. It, it was the, the renovated second edition of the temple. Most of you know that the first temple was built during the days of King Solomon, but that temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Uh, when they took over Jerusalem after Israel and Judah had sinned against the Lord for many years. Now, the second temple was rebuilt during the days of Ezra, and it was completed around 516, 515 B.C. But centuries after, when Herod the Great came into power, he took it upon himself to renovate the second temple significantly. Herod was just obsessed with building great things. And his temple project started in 19 B.C. and didn't finish until 60 A.D. So it took about 80 years Herod expanded the temple area to compass around 35 acres of land. And Josephus wrote that he used these huge stones in the construction of the buildings. It was a massive undertaking. The whole area took up about one-sixth of the old city of Jerusalem. Uh, There were a number of other impressive buildings and walls that enclosed various courts. But the crowning feature of this complex was the temple itself. It included a, a magnificent facade that was, that was mostly in white, but also covered in many places with gold. And some have said that as the temple sat on the hill of Jerusalem, it almost looked like a snow-capped mountain that was dusted with gold. The temple was a place of, of beauty and a point of pride for the Jewish people. And even though it wasn't completely done during the days of Jesus, it was already a stunning place by that time. So it's possible that this disciple was just admiring its beauty on this particular day. But I'm inclined to believe that there is a little more behind his comment. You see, Mark portrays the disciples of Jesus in his gospel as a group of well-meaning followers who struggle over and over again to really understand the true nature and ministry of Jesus. They, they just don't fully get it. And at this point in their journey with him, there's no evidence that they really understand what Jesus is about to go through on the cross. The disciples still had great expectations for Jesus. They were expecting Jesus to to usher in his kingdom as the promised Messiah. And remember that Jesus had just finished condemning the current leadership of Israel. And so it's very possible that this particular disciple was thinking that there would soon be a need for new leadership. A new leadership of the temple. Who better to lead the people of Israel and to recapture the uh, control of the temple for the glory of God than Jesus himself. So I imagine that with a, a mix of pride and 
expectation on his way out of Jerusalem, this disciple said to Jesus, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. What, what a wonderful place for you to, to take over. And we'll be right there beside you. The disciples' kingdom bubble had grown quite large. But notice how Jesus responded. In verse 2, he said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. You can begin to hear the air seeping out of that bubble. Jesus said, do you see? Can you really see these buildings? In essence, can you you see through the stones and, and the gold and the facade of it all to the emptiness that's inside? Can you see the greed and the the abuse of authority and the the false spirituality that have crowded out the presence of God in that temple? Do you see? Do you have spiritual eyes? Do you understand what's going to happen here? It is all coming down. And his words would come to pass. In AD 70, during the Jewish-Roman wars, the Roman commander Titus gave orders to destroy the whole city, including the temple. Josephus wrote that the temple and the city were dug up to the foundation, that there was left nothing to make those that came thither believe it had ever been inhabited. This grand symbol of the Jewish faith, constructed of of huge stones that, that was still being renovated at the time, would soon fall. And the idea of that was shocking to the disciples. It's like if someone told you that Apple Park in Cupertino was going to be raised soon. And there is no more hope for tech in Silicon Valley anymore. After $5 billion, years of construction, that would be pretty shocking. It would be pretty hard to believe. And if that were really true, it would just take some time to process. So that's why we find the disciples asking Jesus some follow-up questions afterward in private. In verse 3, we learn that Jesus made his way onto the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And four disciples came to him seeking more information concerning what he had said earlier. Uh, Mark tells us that it was his three closest disciples, plus Andrew, who was Peter's brother. And together they said to Jesus in verse 4, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? After hearing Jesus talk about the temple's destruction, they had started to think through the implications of that. And and they wanted to know about two things. They wanted to know when it would happen and what to look out for. Would it happen in their lives or much later on? And how would they know to expect it? Notice also that they asked about these things. That phrase, these things, is used twice in verse 4, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And this tells us something important. These things refers more than to just the fall of the temple. It assumes that the temple's destruction will be part of a series of additional end time events. The disciples would have been very familiar with Zechariah 14. And we don't have time to go there this morning. But that speaks of the Messiah returning to Jerusalem and the city being sieged. But all of that eventually leading to the beginning of the Messianic kingdom. 
And so with Jesus' statement on the impending ruin of the temple, these disciples wanted to know that, or wanted to know that if indeed the temple had to come down, then when would that be? And what sign would help them recognize the start of all these end time events? It's almost certain that they didn't expect a long interval between the destruction of the temple and the consummation or the beginning of the kingdom. They probably thought that these things would happen together. They just wanted to know when and what sign to watch out for. But Jesus needed to clarify and correct some of their assumptions. So what we get in the rest of chapter 13 is the longest discourse in the Gospel of Mark. This is the longest teaching section by Jesus in this book. And because it speaks of certain things that seem to have already come to pass and also things that are still to come, it has caused no shortage of debate and discussion among scholars. Since the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, was Jesus referring to that time in this chapter, or was he referring to the very end of time? I think the best way to approach Jesus' teaching here is with the understanding that he had both of these time frames in view. The more immediate event of the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 is a preview in many ways of the trouble to come in the end. But I also want you to notice that Jesus' focus isn't on the timing or the minute details of what is coming in the future. In this all of that discourse, Jesus responds generally to his disciples' questions, but he focuses more on making sure that they are prepared for what's to come. And chapter 13 is a chapter about the future, but it's primarily meant to exhort the disciples and, and us today to be faithful in the present. Just glance with me briefly at some of the, the many commands in this chapter. Look at verse 5. It says, or Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray. Or verse 7, do not be alarmed. Verse 9, be on your guard. Verse 11, do not be anxious. Verse 14, flee. Verse 18, pray. Verse 23, be on guard. And more than knowing the precise times and details surrounding the future, Jesus wanted his disciples to be prepared for all that would come. And what we find in verses 5 through 23 are four initial preparations that he wants us to make for the end. Four preparations that we should make in light of the end. And the first is that we need to be wary of deceivers. Be wary of deceivers. As Jesus began his lesson on the Mount of Olives, he said to his disciples in verse 5, See that no one leads you astray. He warned his disciples to not get fooled by others. He warned them about being led down the wrong path. Specifically, he said in verse 6 that many will come in my name, meaning they would come claiming his authority. They would come saying, I am he. These pretenders would claim to be the Messiah themselves. And history is full of these false messiahs. They were around in the days of the early church. You can go to Acts 5 or Acts 21 to see some examples of that. And they continue to crop up today. And these deceivers are surprisingly still able to find followers. They're usually dynamic enough to draw in a crowd. And Jesus predicted this. The, these antichrists would lead many astray. And the clear instruction here for us is not to naively succumb to the dynamic leadership of those who might falsely claim to be Christ and thus lead us in the wrong direction. 
We need to be wary of these kinds of deceptive leaders. Now, notice that Jesus wasn't saying be aware of all leaders who speak on behalf of Christ. There is certainly a healthy respect that we should have for those that the Lord has placed over us as spiritual authorities. Here, Jesus was warning against those who lead astray, particularly those who are concerned with pointing others to themselves. They say, I am he. The boldest manifestation of this is those who explicitly claim to be the Messiah, but we should also be wary of those who speak well of Christ, yet end up pointing people more to themselves than to Christ. When evaluating spiritual leaders, it's so easy for us to be attracted to those who are dynamic and skilled and well-liked by others, but we must not be deceived by those qualities. We must always be looking to come under the care of those who exalt Jesus and not themselves. So be discerning. Look for and honor leaders who exhibit integrity in their character and are more about bringing honor to Christ than themselves. The first way to be prepared for the future is to realize that deceivers will come and we need to be wary of them. The second way to be prepared is found in verses 7 and 8. We need to not only be wary of deceivers, but we need to be realistic about the world as well. Be realistic about the world. Jesus said in verse 7, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And conflict in this world among nations and kingdoms is inevitable. Though the Jews in Jesus' day lived in relative peace under Roman rule, they would soon experience wars and rumors of wars. The Jewish-Roman wars would begin in A.D. 66. But Jesus told them not to be alarmed, and he also said this must take place. Why must this take place? Why is war inevitable? Well, war is the inescapable consequence of human sinfulness. Nations and kingdoms rise up against each other. Civil wars break out. World wars occur. This is what happens when you, when you have so many humans in this world who are separated from God and who live for themselves. God allows war as part of his ultimate plan for this world. He is a merciful God who saves, but he is also a holy God who judges and allows humanity to experience the terrible consequences of living according to their own rules. War is something that we should expect in this world. It, it doesn't mean the end has come yet. And the same is true of earthquakes and famines. There were large earthquakes in the 60s AD. There was one that decimated the city of Colossae and another that seriously damaged the city of Pompeii. Uh, some say that that served as a precursor to the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79. Acts eleven twenty eight also mentions a great famine that occurred during the reign of the Emperor Claudius in the 40s AD. Jesus warned his disciples that political and social upheaval was normal. When these things happen, we can rightly ask why and we should grieve that they occur, but we need not be alarmed. This is par for the course. I think if Jesus were talking to us today, he would likely add pandemics to his list. We should expect that these kinds of events will happen. And Jesus said that these 
are but the beginning of the birth pains. It's going to get worse. These contractions are going to get heavier. But we have to learn from Jesus to be realistic and moderate in our expectations for this world. We, we all want to think that the good times are coming. That's been true in every age of humanity. Most of us tend to live with the expectation or the hope at least that things are going to get better. Pandemic is a prime example of this. Though God allows something like COVID to wake us up to the reality of death and disease in a fallen world, I think most of us have just been looking forward to the day it will all be over. We look to medical advances and vaccines and boosters and COVID drugs. We buy better and better masks, hoping just to make it through all this craziness. We, we look forward to the day when COVID will be declared an endemic and we can go on with our lives. And though we've gotten discouraged at times at this, as this thing drags on, we're still generally hopeful that we'll beat it as a society and, and learn from it and things will be better in the end. I think at least that's our, the general feeling. We'll have more medical knowledge. We'll, we'll be better prepared for the next virus. We, we, we just live with great optimism, don't we? In the midst of drought and pollution and climate change, we believe that electric cars and solar panels and technological innovation can help us stave off some of these problems. Some hope for a decentralized economy where access to capital is universal. We long for Christians to become influencers in this world through sports or entertainment or social media or politics. We hope that nations will become Christian well, let's not get carried away. The Bible never promises us that these kinds of things will happen. And there's no promise that natural disasters and poverty and, and corruption will ever come to an end in this present age. There, there's no promise of mass conversion and turning to Christ before he returns. There is no assurance of technological utopia. There is no defeat of cancer or disease. There's no promise of peace before the return of the Lord. Instead, Jesus said, look for war. Expect false Christs. Get ready for earthquakes and, and famine. This isn't the kind of Christian message that you tend to find on Instagram quotes. But these are the words of Jesus. And the end will prove what is true. And in the meantime, we must wait patiently. We must not fret or grow alarmed when bad things happen. Instead, that should be our expectation. We don't need to become pessimists, for God's grace is still present in this world, but we should be realists. And a real understanding of this world understands its fallen nature will manifest itself over and, and over again until Christ returns. Yet our God is still in control. And we are to continue to be faithful to what God has called us to do, to, to work for his glory, to proclaim his gospel, to pray for his will to be done. And so how do you prepare yourself in light of what is coming in the end? First, be wary of deceivers. Second, be realistic about this world. And third, be ready to endure. Be ready to endure. In verse 9, Jesus said, be, but be on your guard. Be ready. Why? 
Because persecution is coming. For, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. Be ready to endure by expecting persecution. Be ready to endure by expecting persecution. We know that what Jesus described is, is what his disciples experienced. The book of Acts tells us of how Paul and the other apostles experienced this kind of mistreatment by the Jews. It also speaks of how they were arrested and brought before Roman authorities. And if you skip down to verse 12, you'll see that Jesus warned of persecution that wouldn't just come from authorities and rulers. It would come from one's own family. He wrote, and brother will deliver brother over to death, and father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Faith in Christ will divide families, even result in death. And Jesus said in verse 13, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. This is what we should expect. Christians throughout history have repeatedly and consistently experienced the animosity of this world. Our minds should go to the early church and all they went through for the gospel and those who were martyred for their faith in the 16th century We should think of the Muslim-majority countries today where Christians are constantly at risk of being mistreated and the the other closed countries where Christianity is considered a threat to the government and a danger to society. We should think even of our own country and our neighbors to the north, Canada, where legislation like Bill Bill C-4 has been passed or may soon, where legislation like that may soon be passed that considers biblical teaching on sexual morality to be subject to criminal penalties. Do not be surprised that the world will hate you for your commitment to Christ. We must be ready for that. But Jesus also reminded us that in the midst of persecution, there are gospel opportunities. We must be ready to endure by expecting persecution, but we also must be ready to endure by proclaiming the gospel. We see this at the end of verse 9. We must be ready to endure by proclaiming the gospel. Though Jesus would be delivered over to religious and secular authorities, and though his disciples would have the same thing happen to them, that would provide them with an opportunity to bear witness before them. Their sufferings wouldn't be meaningless. Rather, they would be chances to testify of their faith. And Jesus reminded them of the importance and the assurance of proclaiming the gospel in verse 10. He said, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And and that word must, in verse 10, highlights God's sovereign plan for human history. The progress of the gospel cannot and will not be halted by opposition because God will accomplish what he has set out to do. Persecution can't stop the spread of the good news that Jesus came to save us from our sin by living in our place on this earth and dying in our place on the cross and rising for our hope to new life if we repent from our sin and believe in him. Despite hatred, the gospel will succeed. It will go to the ends of the world. This is what Jesus commissioned his disciples to do, to make disciples of all nations. And by the time of Paul, in a sense, they had done this. The gospel had spread to the known world. Paul himself wrote in Romans 16, 26, that it has been made known to all nations. But 
We know now that the world is bigger than what they understood it to be in those days. And yet the gospel has continued to go forth. It has effectively reached all over the world. And while some might be inclined to think that Jesus can't return until every people group or ethnicity hears the gospel, I don't think that that's Jesus' main point here. Certainly we should continue to pursue missions in the areas of the world and among the people of the world that are most unreached. And perhaps God is still waiting in his patience to allow more peoples to be exposed to the truth of the gospel before he sends his son back to this earth. But the main point in verse 10 is not to set some kind of condition upon God before he can act. The main point is that the gospel will not be stopped by those who hate it. Persecution will come. But it will not stamp out the message of salvation through Christ. The the gospel will, it must go to the ends of the earth. So as Christians, we must be prepared to proclaim it. We must be prepared to bear witness to Christ no matter where we find ourselves. Even among a hostile crowd at work or at school or in your community, you have an opportunity to bear witness. One One way that we endure is by faithfully proclaiming the gospel. And we can do this trusting in the Spirit. And and that's the last way that we are instructed to endure in these verses. We, We need to be ready to endure by expecting persecution, by proclaiming the gospel, and by trusting the Spirit. Jesus said in verse 11, When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. This is not a verse that we should use to be lazy in preparing to speak about our faith, but it's a verse that should comfort us when we are unexpectedly put into situations that we haven't been able to prepare for. In those opportunities, Jesus reminds us that we can trust that the Holy Spirit is with us and will give us the right words to say. God will not abandon us. And then look at the end of verse 13 with me. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Be ready to endure. In verses 5 through 13, Jesus gave us a preview of what we should expect as believers in this world. We, We should expect religious deception and world turmoil and frequent persecution. This is what the early church faced and what we continue to face today. So we need to be wary We need to be realistic, and we need to be ready to endure. But there's one more preparation that I want to point out in our remaining verses, and I'll try to do this quickly, but we also need to be prepared to flee. Be wary of deceivers, be realistic about the world, be ready to endure, and be prepared to flee. Now, verse 14 marks an important point in this discourse here. Jesus refers to the abomination of desolation. And this abomination was first described in the book of Daniel. It's mentioned in Daniel 9.27, 11.31, and 12.11, if you want to look there later on. But there it predicts the desecration of the temple in 167 B.C. by a ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes. And the book, 1 Maccabees, tells us that Antiochus erected this abomination by building a pagan altar on God's altar in the temple. And Josephus tells us that even, he even uh, sacrificed a swine on it. 
So Antiochus' actions were egregious, but we learn here from Jesus that they didn't completely fulfill the prophecies in Daniel. Jesus indicated here that another abomination was coming that would lead to the destruction of the temple. And, and this came very close to happening in AD 40 when the Roman Emperor Caligula, Caligula almost had an image of himself installed in the temple. But, but it's more likely that Jesus was referring here to the time when some Jewish zealots occupied the temple in AD 67 and 68 and they allowed all kinds of atrocities to occur there. And this was followed not long after by Titus coming into Jerusalem and into the temple in AD 70 and having it destroyed. So the prophecy of the abomination of desolation had potentially a second fulfillment around the time when the temple was destroyed in the first century. But there seems to be an even greater and final fulfillment of this prophecy just prior to Jesus' second coming. You'll notice the, the abomination of desolation is described in personal ter- terms as, as one standing where he ought not to be in Mark. And this seems to correlate closely with Paul's words in Second Thessalonians 2 about a, a man of lawlessness who will exalt himself in the temple of God. You can look there later, Second Thessalonians 2 verses 3 to 4. Both that passage in Thessalonians and this one in Mark 13 seem to describe an an antichrist who will do something shocking to trigger the return of Christ in the end. And so the abomination that Jesus describes seems to refer to the events around AD 70 related to the temple, but it also points to a future fulfillment in the last days. Because verse 19 tells us, That in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. This is the great tribulation that precedes Jesus' second coming. Its severity will be without equal in human history. And, And Jesus said that if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. There will be some in those days who will be saved, and God will be merciful to them by limiting that period. But the fact that Jesus mentions this great time of tribulation points us forward to the end and all the trouble that will come upon the world that's outlined in the book of Revelation. This double fulfillment is crucial to understand this passage. Perhaps that's why Mark indicated his own little comment in verse 14, let the reader understand pay attention judgment and great tribulation were ahead and and that's why jesus said at the end of verse 13 14 then let those who are in judea flee to the mountains let the one who is on the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out and let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloth cloak this this time of tribulation will be so severe and serious that followers of christ just need to flee and flee quickly don't even stop for what you think are necessities and hopefully you're not pregnant or, or nursing or, and you're not trying to get away when the winter rains might make travel difficult. The emphasis here is to be ready to get away because of the tribulation that is coming. And a small picture of this could be found right before the destruction of the temple in AD 70 when many Jews fled the city in anticipation of its fall. But as we said, there is coming a greater day of tribulation when the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, desolates the temple. And for those who are saved in that day, they are told to just run. 
not because of the power of the Antichrist, but because the divine judgment of God in those days will be severe. So flee to the mountains in safety, for safety. Flee to the mountains for refuge until Christ returns. Don't get attached to this world. It will be judged. Jesus warned his followers of this coming time, and he warned them to flee because he wanted to protect them. Jesus is concerned for the safety and well-being of his followers. He desires to rescue us from divine wrath. And if you flee from the comforts of this world to find your refuge in him, you can live with the confidence that he will take care of you. Even in the midst of great tribulation, he will provide a path of safety for you. But if you cling on to what the world deems valuable, you may not escape. In verses 21 and 22, Jesus spoke again of false Christs and false prophets who would try to lead the elect astray in the last days. They would do it if they could. If possible, Jesus said in verse 22. But we know that it's not possible for those whom God has elected to be his own to be deceived. And lastly, we read in verse 23, but be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. We need reminders like this because we want to believe that the world is getting better. We sometimes just want Jesus to occupy the modern temples of this world and rule. And if we could just have Jesus-like athletes and CEOs and presidents and justices, we'd be all good. If we could capture the institutions of influence in this world for Christ, we'd be okay. The world would be a better place. But that's just not what Jesus predicts. He predicts that deception and turmoil and persecution and tribulation are coming. So have a realistic vision of this world. Be on guard. Get ready for the end. Be wary. Be ready to endure. Be prepared to flee. And do so trusting in Christ, who is our ultimate hope and is coming again. And Jesus has much more to say about that, but we'll look at his words the next time we we get a chance to finish this chapter together. Okay, let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, we thank you for how you provide us with clear instruction from your word on how we should live, how we should live in these days in light of what is coming. Oh, Father, we, we thank you that your word is true, that, that, that what it portrays is what we see even in the world today. That Christians are hated for the sake of Christ, that there continue to be disasters and wars and trial and tribulation. Yet in the midst of this, Lord, you, you tell us how we should live. We should live faithful to your word. We should live with a discerning mindset. Uh, we, we should live Uh, knowing that that we need to endure, but knowing that you have also provided a refuge for us to flee to in Christ. And so may our hope and our trust be in him as we live faithfully in this world now. We pray these things in his name. Amen.
remain standing for the benediction. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify us completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. For a short time of reflection, you'll be dismissed when the music plays.